Good morning. Thank you all again for having me. I, I feel like I say it every time, but it is truly a joy to be back here when we get to come up. It's, I think especially for my wife and the kids. I mean, Emily grew up here, so it's just, it is truly like being back home. So um, with that being said, I would invite you, uh, our sermon text this morning is found in the Gospel of John, so I'd invite you to turn there. Gospel of John chapter 7. And we'll be starting in verse 37. John chapter 7, verses 37 through 39. And this is God's holy and inspired word. Let us give our attention to it. On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Would you join me in prayer? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you, Lord, that we get to come before you and worship, and we get to hear from your word. Lord, we acknowledge as we hear your word, um, God, that apart from your help, that these Uh, words would fall on deaf ears. And so I ask, Lord, that by your spirit, you would illuminate your word to us, God, that it would uh, cut us to the quick, that it would put to death in us the old man and make alive in us uh, the new. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So as a parent, and I don't think I'm alone in this, Uh, I am surprised at how often I find myself reminding my children that there is enough water, that they're not going to run out of water. So what I mean by this is, you know, for example, we'll be driving in the car and one of our daughters, I won't say which one, will ask, you know, for a bottle of water. And so, you know, one of us will hand back a water bottle and all of a sudden we'll hear chugging as if, you know, their life depended on it. They'll be chugging this water bottle. And what we're realizing is, as they're doing this, is that they're trying to drink all the water before the other sister or sibling can have a drink. And then, you know, uh, uh, unavoidably, as this happens, the other sibling will scream, you know, they drink all the water, all the water's gone. So I feel like I'm constantly reminding my children that, don't worry, you know, we're almost home, there's plenty of water, we're not going to run out of water. And, you know, I think we're, you know, unlike most of world history, we, uh, you know, we're in a place where our, you know, uh, lack of water is not an issue of life or death for us. We're not, I don't think many of us have found ourselves in a situation where we've literally been, you know, in a life or death situation because we haven't had enough water. And you know, I think we, because of this, we take for granted that we can go to our fridge or we can go to our sink, you know, turn on the tap, and we have plenty of you know, fresh flowing water that we always have access to. Um, you know, but we know, even despite this taking water for granted, we know that lack of water is a very dangerous thing. We're told that you, know, you can go days, weeks without food, but only a few days without water. And you know, uh, the other day, actually, unintentionally, I did some sermon prep when I decided, and you know, Escondido's a little uh, more inland from here, I decided to go on a run at 2 in the afternoon in 95-degree weather, which is a bad idea. And so you know, usually as I'm running, maybe about a mile in, my shirt starts to get a little wet, I start to sweat, and I realized that I, was, I had absolutely no sweat on my body. And what I realized was it was so hot and so arid that any sweat that I had immediately was just being wicked out of my clothes and into the air. And I, you know, I had to slow myself down because I realized if I you know, kept up at this pace that I would be in a lot of trouble really fast. And you know, so the, the, we, we know that lack of water, that dehydration is a very real threat, that we need water to survive. You know, we're aware of these dangers, and yet 
we know, even though we know this, we know, and Scripture is very clear that there's a thirst, there's a lack of water that's even more severe. It's even more profound. It's this spiritual thirst that we encounter in Scripture that truly is a matter for us of life and death. And it's this spiritual thirst that our text brings to us this morning. So as we consider uh, this passage in John, I want to look at and consider, you know, primarily what it is that Jesus is offering to us as thirsty people. And I want to consider it under three headings this morning. So first, I want to look at our spiritual thirst. Then I want to look at the thirst-quenching Savior. And then finally this morning, I want to look at the water of the Spirit. And so this morning, first, we want to see our spiritual thirst. And so, you know, we kind of jump into this text. It's, it seems kind of abrupt to us, but we see that this text starts with an invitation, as we see you know, throughout the Gospels, that Jesus is giving this invitation to the crowds. And Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And perhaps some of you are thirsty right now. Probably all this talk that I've, we've had so far about water and dehydration. Maybe some of you have that Pavlovian urge to open up your hydro flask and take a swig. But I would, I would venture that most of us, you know, we probably read this text before, but I would venture that without even thinking about it, we understood that Jesus isn't talking here about, you know, physical thirst, about physical dehydration, that Jesus is getting at some, something deeper in this call to those who are thirsty. And in order to really understand what Jesus is getting at, what this thirst is, uh, and what he's addressing to the crowd, we want to understand the context in which Jesus is giving this invitation to the thirsty, and we are, we are told, um, you know, Jesus, uh, it says Jesus stands up. John tells us that it was on the last day of the feast, the great day. And the feast here that is being referred to is the Jewish Feast of Booths. You've probably heard it called the Feast of Booths or Tabernacles. Um, and, uh, you know, it's, uh, this really, this Feast of Booths is the broader context for all of chapter 7. There's various encounters that Jesus has, and it's all structured around this Jewish Feast of Booths. And this uh, feast was, you know, one of the feasts for the people of Israel all the way back through, you know, into the Old Testament that God had given them to remember year after year God's redemptive works. And so, uh, you know, that's this feast in the book of Leviticus that God gave. He commanded the people that year after year, you're to have this, this festival, this remembrance of your time in the wilderness. So, you know, this idea that when you get into the promised land, when you finally get the blessing that God has promised you, you would remember year after year that you were brought through the wilderness, that you lived in tents. And so the people kept this faithfully year after year, even into Jesus's day. Now, in the time of Jesus, um, the way that this feast was celebrated was that it was this you know, seven-day festival, and every single day um, that, the, that they had this feast, that basically the priest would go down to this pool called the Pool of Siloam, which was in Jerusalem. They would take this, you know, this very ornate golden pitcher, they would fill it up with water, and then every day they would parade it through the streets of Jerusalem, they would bring it up to the temple, and then a priest would take this jug of water and they would pour it out. Uh, from the temple, and there would be this image of uh, water flowing from the temple. And there was really two uh, Old Testament images that were really uh, being encapsulated, that were really trying to uh, be conveyed through this ceremony of pouring water out. Uh, The first one, understandably, is the provision of water that God had given to the people in the wilderness. And so, you know, we see throughout uh, throughout the 40 years of the wilderness that God continually provided water for his people, that even though they were in this barren wilderness, that God continually gave them this source of water. And so they would pour out this water, you know, year after year during this ceremony to remind them that God was their source of water. And there was another image tied to this ritual, this uh, water ceremony, and that was this image that you see throughout the prophets, this picture of the temple. And there was the, you know, you see it in Isaiah, you see it in Jeremiah and Joel. It's this image that the prophet would give us of rivers of living water flowing out from the, you know, from the entrance of the temple, flowing out and becoming these rivers 
to the world. And so this imagery was all tied up into these ceremonies that the people would practice year after year. So we see it, you know, in, in one regard, it's this looking back at God's past faithfulness to them in the, in the wilderness. And then it's this looking forward to this future hope, this day when rivers would flow out of the temple, this prophetic promise that God had given to his people. And so we're told then in, in John chapter 7 that it was on the great day. So this would be the last, the seventh day of this very you know, elaborate festival, this very, um, you know, this very climactic day that Jesus stood up in the midst of the people and he cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And you, as you can imagine, the, uh, the, the contrast here would have been jarring for the people, right? You, know, the, you can imagine them looking at Jesus on the one hand, looking at the altar on the other hand with the water probably still flowing out from it or the ground still wet from it. And Jesus is saying, come to me if you are thirsty, come to me. And the people, you can imagine, were probably scratching their heads. You know, probably some of them were wondering or thinking, you know, we're not thirsty. What are you, what are you talking about, Jesus? You know, we're the people that God provided water for in the wilderness. We're the people that have this promise of rivers of living water flowing from the temple. And even more than, you know, perhaps being confused, some of them were probably even offended, offending that Jesus would claim such a thing, would claim that they were spiritually thirsty people. You know, they would say something like, of course we don't thirst. We are God's people. And yet Jesus, his call to the thirsty, as he gives it to the crowd, you know, indiscriminately, there's this underlying assumption that Jesus has, this underlying truth that Jesus is conveying. And that's the truth that all men are truly spiritually thirsty people. And this is a truth not only in Jesus's call and his invitation to the thirsty, but it's a truth that we see uh, made abundantly clear in Scripture, that every human being is a spiritually thirsty person. I mean, we see this even in creation, that we're made as needy people. We're made to rely on sustenance, on food, on water. We're made to rely on God, that we need God, as the, as the Shorter Catechism said, that you know, our chief end is to glorify God and enjoy Him forever, that God made that need, that desire in us. And not only in our creation, but even more so by the fall, man is a needy, thirsty person. That in the fall that we are cut off, we're told, from the life-giving fellowship that God had granted with himself. That every single human being by the fall is a spiritually dead and spiritually thirsty person. And that when we see the effects of that in this life, that we're subjected to the, the effects of the curse of this, this dehydration, the spiritual waterlessness. We see this in the toil, the pain, the hardship of this life, and even in death itself, the ultimate thirst of death. And, you know, as, as God's people, even, we are not immune to spiritual thirst. And we see this, I think, most clearly in the book of Psalms, which so often uses the image of water, the image of thirst, to describe the, uh, the way that God's people can, can often be at different times in their lives. We see, you know, for example, in Psalm 42, it's kind of shown as a positive thing that uh, the psalmist describes his desire, his longing for God. He's like a deer who's longing after streams of living water. And so we have this thirst in one positive sense that we long for fellowship with God. We desire to be close to God, to be intimate with him. And often in other psalms, we see this as a negative thing. Something uh, is lacking. Something is just not right, and it's described as spiritual thirst. For example, in Psalm 32, you know, David, he begins the psalm talking about this season of his life where he's just crushed. He's dealing with this hidden sin. And the way he describes that season is he says that his strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. So David's saying that in the midst of his, his distress, that there's this you know, spiritual source of water, this spiritual moisture that's been completely sapped out of his body. And I think you know, even apart from the Psalms, I think we all can attest to the fact that we you know, so often have these times, these seasons of spiritual 
and emotional distress, the season of spiritual dryness. Times where we have deep, unmet longings, deep, unmet desires in our lives. Times where we're struggling like David in besetting sin. Times when we have this uh, acute awareness of our own inadequacies. Times when we see areas in our lives that feel like dry, barren wastelands that will never grow fruit again. Relationships, perhaps, that never feel like they will bear fruit in the future. We all, I think, or I, I believe and I know, we all experience seasons of spiritual thirst. And so when Jesus gives this invitation to the thirsty to come to him, it's not a matter of whether or not one is spiritually thirsty. Jesus is telling us, you are all spiritually thirsty. You know, it's not like when you're at a restaurant and the waiter, it's the third time he's come around, and he's you know, trying to fill up your water glasses, and he's asking, are you thirsty? You're like, oh, no, I'm good. It's not, you know, it's not an option. You know, it's not, it's not if we are spiritually thirsty, but the issue at hand here that Jesus brings to bear is whether or not we recognize that we truly are a spiritually thirsty people. And so I would ask you all this morning, including myself, are you thirsty? Are you thirsty? And, you know, if you are thirsty, which I think Scripture makes clear, thankfully, God, or Jesus doesn't just show us the problem. He doesn't just show us that we are spiritually thirsty people but Jesus tells us how our spiritual thirst can be satisfied. And so that's what we want to consider in our second point this morning, the the thirst-quenching Savior. And so as we see in in this passage, Jesus says, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. And Jesus is making very clear, in order to have our spiritual thirst satisfied, to have it quenched, we must come to Jesus himself. And he tells us, not only does he tell us how to have it quenched, he tells us what he promises to give those to, uh, who come to him to have their thirst satisfied. Jesus says, Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, the, the New Testament, if, uh, you know, if you're familiar with, um, you know, uh, or well, the, the New Testament quotes the Old Testament quite often, and uh, most new uh, you know, English translations of the New Testament, they'll help us out a little bit. They'll put these quotations, you know, in, in such a way that we know that they're actual quotations from the Old Testament. They'll, you know, they'll italicize them, they'll block them off from the rest of the text. But um, you'll note in our passage this morning that there's no break in the passage. And that's because, try as you might, you will not find this quote that Jesus gives us from the Old Testament. Jesus isn't giving us a proof text or a scripture quote per se. Rather, Jesus is giving us really a summary of the theme that we find throughout the Old Testament, this image of rivers of living water. And this really, you know, makes sense in the light of the the Feast of Booths, in light of all that's happening around the people, it makes sense that Jesus would use this imagery. And, you know, the people would have understood without even an explanation what Jesus was getting at with the thematic and the scriptural allusions that water and streams of living water carried with it. And so really, in effect, what Jesus is saying as he's promising to give rivers of living water, as the people are in the ceremony, as they're you know, re- recounting uh, these Old Testament promises, Jesus is really, in a, in a sense, saying you know, all that this ceremony is re- meant to represent, all that the water that you're you know, using in the ceremony, all that those symbolize, they're all pointing to me. They're all true about me. You know, and, and consider just what, uh, you know, what Jesus is saying with this symbolism of water. You know, think of the, the water in the wilderness. You know, what, uh, what was it that gave water to the people in the wilderness? Obviously, we know that it was God, that God provided food, God provided water. But uh, more concretely, it was the rock in the wilderness. As we're told, uh, like in Exodus 17, that it was the rock that followed the people through the wilderness. And would, you know, as Moses would strike the rock, the, wa- the water would flow from the rock and would give life to the people. 
And so Jesus is really saying, you know, I am that rock. I am the rock that was in the wilderness. uh, Just like the people had to look to the rock to be sustained, you need to look to me to have your spiritual thirst satisfied. And if maybe that sounds like a little bit of a stretch, the Apostle Paul makes this connection explicit in the book of 1 Corinthians. As he's speaking, you know, recounting about the the Israelites in the wilderness, he says this in chapter 10. He says, "All all of Israel drank from the same spiritual rock, for they drank from the spiritual rock that followed them, and the rock was Christ. Or, you know, consider the imagery of the waters flowing from the temple that we see throughout the prophets. You know, and it's, you know, it would be hard to, uh, to miss as Jesus is standing literally in front of the temple as the waters are flowing out from the temple in Jerusalem. And Jesus is saying that, you know, no longer are living waters going to flow out of this temple. They're going to flow out of me. I'm going to be the source of living water. And we want to see also the, the exclusivity of this call this morning that, you know, Jesus said, doesn't say come to a temple to get water, you know, follow this religious system necessarily, but Jesus says, come to me. I am the source of living water. I alone can satisfy your spiritual needs. So just as the people in the wilderness, they had to come to the rock, otherwise they would die, they would perish. Jesus is saying that you have to come to him, that by believing in Jesus, we, you know, only by believing in Jesus, that is, can one person be truly refreshed, truly satisfied of their thirst. And, you know, unfortunately, as we see the, the stories both before and after this, Jesus's interactions throughout the, the festival of booths, we see that most of the people, they didn't come. They didn't heed his call to come to him. They did not see Jesus as the one who could satisfy their spiritual thirst. You know, by and large, and this is, you know, not only in this story, but throughout the Gospels, most of the people rejected the Messiah. And in doing so, in rejecting the source of living water, they were re, uh, truly forsaking the God who had sent this, this one, the source of living water. And this is the very thing that God indicts his people for, you know, throughout the Old Testament, but in particular in the book of Jeremiah, God says this about his people. He says in Jeremiah 2, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and they have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. And so we see both in the day of Jeremiah and then also in the day of Jesus that the people were neglecting the only source of life and attempting to make their own, their, their own you know, broken cisterns that could not hold water. And while we can probably be quick to think that we would never do such a thing, we would never try to make our own broken cisterns, I think we all, you know, we find it uh, unfortunately too often to be true that you know, we are prone to do this very thing that we are prone to neglect the only source of living water and to seek that living water in things that will not satisfy. You know, as the psalm says, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. That is, that is our heart, to, to drift away from the source of living water and to try and make our own broken cisterns. You know, how often have we put our hope in something else that we, even if we know at some level this won't satisfy us, we still put our, our hope in it. We hope that this thing will, you know, scratch that spiritual itch, that this thing will ultimately give us value and joy and satisfaction. You know, if I just get that job, if I just get into that relationship or just fix that relationship, if I, if I can only attain, uh, attain that status, that place in life, that, you know, that tax bracket, then I will be content, right? If, if all the chairs in Congress turn red or turn blue, if all this, you know, once all this COVID stuff is done with, then I will be truly satisfied, you know, we learn far too often the hard way that these things in life, even the good things, even the blessings that God gives us in this life, family and, 
and provision, things that you know, God has given us as blessings, we so often can turn these things into the ultimate thing. You know, the, the very thing where we turn to find joy, life, contentment, satisfaction. And we know and we have seen all too well that these things will ultimately fail us. They will be broken cisterns. They'll leak out that water that, that we put into them. You know, as Augustine so helpfully summarizes as he's thinking about all these different ways that he's tried to satisfy himself in this life and find meaning and fulfillment, he comes to this conclusion in his confessions in this prayer. He says, God, you have made us for yourself and our hearts are restless until they find rest in you. Or if you need a more modern paraphrase, the Rolling Stones say, I can't get no satisfaction because I try and I try and I try and I try and I can't get no satisfaction. Now, you know, it's not wrong to be spiritually thirsty. As we've said earlier, that's, uh, you know, we need to recognize, it's vital that we recognize that we are spiritually thirsty people. And in fact, we see in Scripture that there are times when spiritual thirst is shown as a blessing. It's a, it's a good thing to have. You know, like in the, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus begins by saying, you know, giving all these blessings. And he says, blessed are those who hunger and who thirst for righteousness, for they will be satisfied. So it's not wrong to be thirsty, but what is critical is that we know where we must go to find satisfaction, namely to Christ alone. Christ alone gives us that satisfaction. To believe that from Christ flow the rivers of living water and that we need to come to him. And so finally this morning, you know, we, we want to consider what it is, what it is that Jesus is promising to give us. What are you know, these rivers of living water. We, we see that, you know, we are spiritually needy people. We recognize that we have to come to Jesus to satisfy, but, but what does he give us? What are these rivers of living water? And so we want to consider our final point this morning, the water of the Spirit. You know, so helpfully, John tells us outright what these waters are. Uh, you know, lest we are left to speculate and over-spiritualize things and figure out maybe what spiritual practices we need to put in our life to, to be satisfied, Je- uh, Jesus or John tells us what Jesus is talking about. John says, now this, speaking of these waters, now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. So Jesus, in promising to give these life-giving waters, is promising to give the Holy Spirit to his people. Now, you know, in one sense, this idea that the Spirit had not yet come, it, it, what it doesn't mean is that the Spirit was in no way active up until, you know, this point, that the Spirit had not, you know, had, uh, was waiting to come uh, at some future date, but up until that point, there was no activity of the Spirit. The Spirit was, you know, out of the, the equation. You know, we see throughout the Old Testament, even in the, in the creation account itself, that the Spirit was actively involved in creation, and the Spirit is actively involved in all of the events of the Old Testament. In particular, you know, these, these great redemptive works, we see the Spirit active. We see, you know, the, um, yeah, the, the Spirit is a key uh, player in all of these redemptive moments of the Old Testament. And we, we recognize, too, that for all believers, whether New Testament or Old Testament, the Spirit is uh, vital for salvation, that the Spirit needs to apply the work of Christ to every believer. So that in one way, you know, we could say that Jesus' call to the thirsty to come to him, to believe is the same then as it was now, that all, all men need to come to Christ to put their faith in him to be saved, and the Spirit needs to you know, bring that person from death to life. As we are united by faith to Christ in his death and resurrection, it is by the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit's work that we are forever united and connected to that one source of living water. And yet, you know, there is this sense that what, is, what John's getting at, there is a sense in which the Spirit had not yet come in some way, that there was this future, this more full fulfillment of the Spirit's work, which was not yet manifest. 
And that, that was the day that the prophets were looking for. This picture of rivers of living water flowing from the temple had not yet come. This picture of rivers being, or water being poured out on all flesh. You know, we know looking back, it's, it's not a surprise, but we know what John's getting at here is the day of Pentecost. You know, this day when the Spirit would come in this full measure that, you know, it would, it would be this, um, this breaking in of the Holy Spirit in this new and powerful way. And the Apostle Peter on the day of Pentecost says this very thing. In his sermon, the Apostle Peter says, Jesus, therefore, being exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. And so we see on the day of Pentecost, we see essentially the start of the new creation, that the Spirit comes in power and is, is you know, the, the church is founded and the Spirit goes out in power and this amazing New Testament period begins. And we see, you know, really that in what John is getting at is that in order uh, to fully and finally satisfy our spiritual thirst, the Holy Spirit had to come. The Holy Spirit had to bring about the new creation. And while, you know, there even now is this future aspect to it, this, this day when all things will be made new, we do see that we are living in a very special era, that something new is happening now that wasn't happening in the Old Testament. You know, if, uh, we could say in one way, if the Old Testament, you know, if the Spirit's work was like this, you know, this stream of, of water, we can say now that it's like a, a white water rapid, that the Spirit's work is just broken out into all the worlds. You know, as we, we see, as the Word is preached week after week, as people come to faith as they're baptized and brought into the church, as we were refreshed by the supper week after week, we see the Spirit at work, the Spirit bringing spiritually dead people back to life, you know, healing uh, relationships and healing people where once there was darkness and deadness, there's now wholeness and healing. People brought uh, over from the dominion of darkness into the dominion of God's beloved Son. We see the church advancing you know, despite opposition. This is all the work of the Holy Spirit that God had been promising. And even now, uh, as we've said, we look forward to this day when all things truly will be made new. And so, you know, one asked the question, what, what was the reason that the Spirit had not yet come? What, why, what was God waiting for, we could say, in sending the Spirit? Well, John says, the Spirit had not been given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And, you know, in one sense, this is just, you know, he's giving a historical rationale. You know, we know Jesus had to go, and then once Jesus left, the Spirit came. You know, it's this, this order of events that we see in Scripture. And Jesus himself even says, you know, I have to go away so that the Spirit can come. But more than just giving a series of events, John is really giving us the grounds. What had to happen for the Spirit to come, for the Spirit to come in power? And John is saying that the Spirit had not yet come because in order for the Spirit to come in power, in order for the new creation to break into this world, Jesus had to be glorified. And, you know, typically when we think of, of glory, when we think of Jesus being glorified, we think of, you know, his resurrection, we think of his ascension, we think of his session at the right hand of the Father, which is, you know, totally right. And that is what we, uh, you know, what, should, what we should think about when we think in terms of Jesus' humiliation and then his exaltation. However, you know, specifically for John, this idea of glorification, we see this throughout his gospel, this idea of, of Jesus being glorified, this idea of Jesus being lifted up, as we see time and time again, is in particular for John, is always tied to one event, and that is the crucifixion. That when John talks about Jesus being glorified, that is really shorthand for John to say Jesus had to go to the cross. And this too, Jesus in, in Jesus heading towards the cross, this is being highlighted in what Jesus is saying. As Jesus is promising these rivers of living water, Jesus is, in one sense, saying that he needs to go to the cross. 
that in order for the Holy Spirit to come, Jesus had to go to the cross. You know, with, again, think about the rock in the wilderness that Jesus is identifying himself with. What, what had to happen to that rock in order for the water to flow out from it? The, the rock had to be struck. As, as we see that Moses had to strike the rock, and by striking it, waters of, or rivers of living water would flow out for the people. Or, you know, think about the temple that Jesus identifies himself as. Jesus himself in John chapter 2 says, you know, tear down this temple and in three days I will build it up. The temple had to be torn down. It had to be destroyed in order for this new temple, this incorruptible temple to come and for water to flow out of it. And Jesus is saying the same thing about himself, that the temple, the rock, that I have to die, I have to be crushed for these waters to come out. Uh, One historian recounts, you know, what happened on this, this final, the seventh climactic day of the feast, uh, they describe what happens. And it says that uh, on the final day that, you know, there was this water ceremony that took place day after day that they would get the water from the pool. And so what would happen is on the seventh day that this offering would uh, coincide with the daily, uh, the, the regular offering. And so as the, the priest would bring up the water, it would coincide with the drink offering of wine. So you would have this cup of, or this jug of water and this jug of wine. And a chosen priest would mount the altar. They would have these two special silver bowls, one for the reception of the drink offering of wine, one for the reception of the water. And the priest, we're told, would pour out the wine and the water at the same time out of their respective bowls. And they were poured out as these offerings to God. And then after completing this ritual of pouring out the water and pouring out the wine, the priest would hold up his hand and he would indicate that he had faithfully discharged his duty as if to say that the task was finished. And, you know, how does John describe the crucifixion in his gospel? We are told this in John chapter 19. It says, After this, Jesus, knowing that all was finished, said, in order to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. And a jar full of sour wine stood there. So they put a a sponge full of sour wine on a branch and held it to his mouth. And when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and he handed over his spirit And the passage goes on to say, But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and out of his side came water and blood. And so we see what Jesus is pointing to and what Jesus accomplishes later in the book of John, that in order to give the life-giving waters of the Spirit to his people, Christ had to thirst. And in his thirsting, in his thirsting unto death, he secured our forgiveness and he secured our salvation. And so I hope that this is an encouragement to all of us this morning that, you know, we, we truly do in this life, we truly thirst, we truly feel the pain of lack, of, of scarcity, of unmet desires, of inadequacy, of, of struggling with our own sins and failures. But we can know because of what Jesus promises that Jesus thirsted in a way that we never will have to thirst, that he was cut off from the life-giving fellowship with the Father, that he thirsted unto death so that we might be filled with the living water of the Holy Spirit. So in closing this morning, John, the author of our gospel, also wrote the, uh, the letter uh, of Revelation, as you guys know, you're going through it. Uh, and John ends this book with this beautiful scene as he's pulling in this imagery from you know, the, the, the prophets. He gives this picture of this, this new temple and the, the rivers of living water flowing out of the temple and giving life to all these plants throughout the year. And after this beautiful image, John closes his letter with this final invitation. John says this, The Spirit and the bride say, Come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires take of the water of life without price. And so this morning, 
may we come to Christ. May we recognize our need for him, and may we drink freely and deeply as he has invited us, trusting that Christ alone can satisfy our every need. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you, God, above all things, that you sent your son for for needy, thirsty people. We thank you that Christ alone bore our sins, that he thirsted so that we might be filled with your spirit. And we do ask that all of our springs, all of our desires would be found and met in you, that we would forsake our broken cisterns. And Lord, even, even now we do look forward to that day when all things will be made new. We pray all this in the precious name of your son. Amen.